This morning, I'm excited to be preaching to you from John chapter 6. You'll turn there with me. We're going to look very briefly at John chapter 6, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 as we prepare to partake of the bread this morning. John chapter 6. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. I'm going to read just two verses from John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning we pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our hearts to feast on Jesus. Help us in this time by the power of your spirit to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. While serving as a missionary was the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table with churches from all over the world. And one of the more memorable experiences that I had was down in Ica, Peru, with our church planning partners at Centro Biblico Familiar. And at that time, they had the custom of having an actual meal together before they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And I remember I was sitting at a table with Pastor Wilfredo and some of the other church leaders, and there were quite a few people there. I remember there were maybe a few more people they were anticipating because all the other tables got their food first, and our table still hadn't got our meal. And so we waited, and we waited, and finally, I just turned to one of the guys sitting next to me. I said, hey, what's going on? Why is it taking so long? And he said, he laughed, and he said, I think they're back in the kitchen praying for Jesus to multiply the food. You know, this story of Jesus taking a few loaves of bread and a few fish and feeding thousands upon thousands of people is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In fact, it's the only miracle Jesus performs that's recorded in all four Gospels. And since it's such a familiar story, we aren't going to dig into the details. But what I want to do very briefly today as we prepare to partake of the bread is to simply remind us of what the most important lesson is from this story. Because while there are many lessons we can learn from the feeding of the 5,000, there is only one main lesson. Perhaps you've heard the story told this way, or maybe you've even told it this way before, that one day Jesus and his disciples were together, and when a large crowd had gathered, Jesus turned to one of his disciples, Philip, and asked him, and said, Philip, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? And Philip basically responded, I have no idea, Jesus, because one of us could work every day for almost a whole year, and we wouldn't be able to earn enough money to buy each one of these people a Twinkie. And so, thankfully, fortunately, a little boy shows up who has a few loaves of bread, a few fish that he's offering to share. And so, Jesus takes this boy's Lunchable and turns it into an all-you-can-eat buffet for about 10,000 people, including all the women and children. And that's a very conservative estimate. And so the moral of the story is that sharing is a good thing. Look at this little boy. He 
came and shared his food and saved the day. Wasn't that so nice of him? You should share too, just like him. Now it is true that sharing is a good thing. It is true that sharing is caring. But that is not the main point of this story. Jesus tells us exactly what the main point is right after he takes a moonlit stroll across the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And the next day, the crowds hop in boats and chase after him. And when they find him, Jesus tells them this, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. A little later, they ask him for this bread, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is the main lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. The main point is Jesus is the bread of life. What those thousands upon thousands of people needed was not merely food for their bellies, but food for their souls. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 is that bread satisfies for an evening, but that Jesus, the bread of life, satisfies forever. Just like the hungry crowd, we are all spiritually starving to death. We've tried to fill our souls with the junk food of sex or money or work or social media, but it just does not satisfy. Our gluttonous appetites for sin have left us starving for righteousness. So just like the father sent manna each day, down on the hungry Israelites wandering around the desert for 40 years, so God the Father sends Jesus, the bread of life, down to satisfy our souls while we wander around this spiritually barren desert we call earth. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread, not merely because our stomachs need to be filled, but because every day our souls need to be filled with Jesus, the bread of life. The main point of the story is not about a boy who shares his food. It's not about a boy who shares his bread, but it's about God the Father who shares his boy, the bread of life, with us. And what happened to the bread of life? He was broken. His body was torn Jesus was nailed to the cross where he suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins in our place. And three days later, he rose again so that all who put their faith in him will be forgiven and eternally satisfied. The bread of life was broken so that all who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed and filled by faith in him. And that's exactly what we're reminding ourselves of when we come to the Lord's table and we partake of the bread. On the night before he died, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in just a moment, when you hold that 
tiny piece of a fraction of a corner of a cracker in your hand, you might think to yourself, there's no way in the world this is going to satisfy me at all. And you'd be right. But what you need to remember in that moment is that man does not live by bread alone. We live by faith in the bread of life alone. So when you take that piece of cracker in a moment and you crush it between your teeth, you need to remind yourself that the bread of life was crushed for your sins, that Jesus was broken so that you may be made whole. Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our souls forever. That is the point of the feeding of the 5,000, and that is what we remember when we partake of the Lord's table. It doesn't matter if we are coming to the Lord's table with our brothers and sisters in Christ in Peru or to the ends of the earth. It's all about Jesus. All those experiences I've had all over the world celebrating the Lord's Supper, they were all unique in their own ways. And yet, they were all exactly the same. By God's grace, spiritually starved sinners gather around a table to feast on the bread of life and to declare that in Jesus, we are fully satisfied now and forevermore. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Let's pray. Oh God, you have set us free in Christ from death, from the power of sin, its power over us from the clutches of Satan. And you've done it through not telling us Do these steps, do these things, and then I will love you, God. You've done it by your grace through your son, Jesus Christ, and his broken body and shed blood. May we see the gospel clearly today and exalt and delight in it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, one of my sons tends to be slightly more dramatic than the others, and I won't name who he, who he is, uh, but if you know my sons, you know which one I'm talking about. And uh, I remember uh, he's had a number of injuries, and so there's a lot of injuries that I, I can think through, but there's one in particular uh, that, uh, that stands out, and it was when he was uh, taking a shower. He was about three at this time. And all of a sudden, we hear a blood-curdling scream coming out uh, of the shower. And I go in there, and his head has a massive gash in it. I mean, it is split open, something awful. And blood is running down his face. He is screaming, crying. Now, mind you, it was a, I mean, it was a, it was a hard hit. But this is a, it was a little much, right? Like, the, like it was a tone it down a little bit. And I remember looking at him and being like, hey, buddy, it's okay. You know, you try to calm your kid down. It's okay, it's okay. And he just screams out, I'm going to die. You know, once he saw the blood going. And I reassured him, you're not going to die. Yes, I am. Look at the blood. You're not going to die. You're fine. Now, it does not take a doctor to tell you that he wasn't, he was wrong, but he wasn't completely wrong because there is truth to what he was saying. Blood is necessary for life. 
I know that's a shocking statement, right? Like everyone's confused about that. But blood is essential life. If we have no blood, we have no life. If we lose too much blood, life escapes us. But in the gospel, there's a flipping of that truth. That it's actually the shedding of blood necessary for life. In Zechariah, what's going on here is the people of God are once again in exile. They're under uh, pagan rule. Uh, they, they are in all kinds of disarray and they are enslaved to foreign nations. And, and, and God, through uh, in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, says this promise that I'm going to strike these nations down. And this striking down is so that, uh, that God's people will be saved from under their oppression and so uh, that these foreign nations would see his might and power and repent and turn to him. And this promise of rest for God's people should cause them to, verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So here we have a call for God's people to praise him with the highest of praises. And this isn't a, like a murmuring, droning, going through the motions, I'm here, but I don't really want to kind of praise. No, this is an eruption of praise that bursts out as a roar. And God commands his people to praise because of a very specific reason. Continue on in the verse. Behold, pay attention. Your king is coming to you. They're called to praise because the king, God's king, is coming. This is the promised Messiah, the warrior king that God promised would come and defeat the enemies of God and restore his people uh, in their land, giving them, uh, giving them what he promised them, this salvation. The Messiah would bring rest and peace to God's people. And the character of this king is perfect. Keep on going in the verse. He's righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's righteous. He's pleasing to the Lord. All that he does and all that he decides and in every way that he judges is completely pleasing and right before God. There is no tipping of the scales with him. He's perfectly right and acts and judges with perfect rightness. And having salvation is he. This king's judgments and his acts bring salvation for his people. And he will rescue them from their oppressive pagan rulers. He will pull them out from their imprisonment to, to, to these oppressors. And he'll liberate them from their enslavement and give them victory over their enemies. And notice the, continue to notice the, the, the character of this. It, it, there's an odd turn here. This mighty, righteous, powerful king who's going to bring salvation for his people. And he is humble, mounted on a donkey. That's a weird thing to say. What does he have to, why is he on a donkey? What are, what are we talking about here? This mighty warrior, warrior king is described as humble, meaning weak. Meaning that he is afflicted, poor, and lowly. The phrase mounted on a donkey only further illustrates this. It shows his humility. Donkeys are not the most impressive animal. No one's riding a war donkey into battle, right? It's a war horse. And so it shows the power and character of this king. He comes to serve and save. And the prophet continues to speak the word of God to, to his people. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. Now, Ephraim and Jerusalem were uh, in the 
nation uh, of Israel. It was cities in, in, in God's kingdom. And so it's not, he's talking about, I'm going to cut off the, the weapons of warfare in my own cities, among my own people. Why? He's showing that this, there's an end to this conflict where they will not need weapons. The king is coming and to win a decisive victory for his people so that there's no need for his people to fight anymore and they can rest. And then he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He comes and he speaks Peace. By the authority of his word, he brings peace to God's people and he shuts down the foreign oppressive nations. He, and he won't even bring peace to God's people, but to all nations. Notice his reign is from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There will be no place his rule does not touch. It's a worldwide reign and all people will be under his good authority. Verse 11 as for you also, and now we're zooming into God's people. We have this worldwide vision. Now we're zooming in onto his people in, uh, in this area. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This blood covenant, what are we talking about here? When the ancient Near East, uh, the way that people would establish a covenant between them, which is, which is a promise uh, plus Right? is they would take an animal, split it down the middle, lay, flay it out, one, one side over here, one side over there, and then the two people would walk together through that split animal, saying, if I break this covenant, if I break this promise, may this splitting of the animal happen to me. It, it, it was a statement of judgment. And so when God called Abraham out from his idolatry to come in and be the father of God's people, he had Abraham split, uh, take five animals, kill them, and then split, uh, split them in half. And then he said, Abraham, stay there, put him, put him into a deep sleep, and God himself only walked through that covenant, establishing that that covenant was not a mutual exchange in the sense that it was dependent on Abraham. It was all dependent on God. This promise to Abraham was, I'm going to establish you as a nation and I'm the one who's going to do it. You do not have any contribution to it. Then when God established his covenant with his people through Moses, uh, God had them sprinkle blood on the tabernacle. That was the, the tent that they would carry through the wilderness that was where God's presence would reside. The law, that was the, the, the Ten Commandments that, he, uh, that, that, they gave, that God gave to the people, and the people. So blood was sprinkled on the tabernacle, the law, and the people as a means of purifying it all. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so in, the, in Zechariah, verse 11, when he says, the blood, because of the blood of my covenant with you, he's calling his people back to remember that covenant that he made. Because they may be, again, mind you, they are in they are enslaved. They have no freedom. They are not uh, living as they are supposed to, as they've, as they've been promised. So it looks like God's promises have failed. He says, remember my blood covenant. Because they're probably thinking, no, this isn't what's happening. This sounds great. We're waiting for that, but it's not coming. What do we have to rely on to trust God? He says, remember my covenant. Remember the blood that was 
shed. And what will God do because of this blood covenant? Verse 11 continued, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Those imprisoned and oppressed by their enemies would be free. And this waterless pit was a horrific form of captivity. Basically think of a giant well with no water in it that people would be thrown into and left there to die unless the captors come to pull them out. There's, no, there's nothing in there to sustain life. There's no food, there's no water, and you cannot climb out. You are in absolute, desperate, helpless state. And what God says is, you who are prisoners, I'm going to reach down and lift you up out of your dead, hopeless state. So what does any of this have to do with us today? Everything. Because the promise that God made to his people thousands of years ago is the same promise he gives to us today. Jesus is the full fulfillment of this prophecy. I hope that was clear to you, uh, but if it wasn't, we're going to briefly walk through it all. He's the righteous, humble king who has brought us salvation. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul talks about Christ saying, being found in human form, he humbled himself, he's the humble king, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to be afflicted on our behalf. Even more specific, Jesus came mounted on a donkey. When he came into Jerusalem, what's called the triumphal entry, uh, people are praising him, lifting up, up, uh, up his names, believing that this is the Messiah come. There's this huge worship service going on, praising God for that he's brought the Messiah King in. And he's riding in on what? A donkey, a colt. Back in verse 10, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. We get a vision from the Apostle John in Revelation 19 that Jesus' reign brings global peace. There's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding the throne of this king, all praising him. It's a worldwide, no single area, untouched kind of rule. And all are praising this king. And then 11, the blood of my covenant with you. When he was during the Passover at table with his disciples, they're eating, they're drinking, and Jesus grabs a cup and pours some wine into it. And he lifts it up and he quotes Zechariah. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant with you. Drink it. And I can't imagine that that moment there was probably pretty awkward. What do you mean we're drinking your blood? What are you talking about? Jesus is saying that he and his shed blood and broken body is the establishment of the new covenant between him and his people. And it's all dependent on Christ his, and his work. It's his blood that he spilled on the cross that establishes our standing with God, our protection from our enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And what has he done? He has uh, set us free from the waterless pit of sin and death. We are enslaved to our sin, oppressed by an enemy who's greater than any earthly king. And we are prisoners to our sinful desires under the thumb of Satan apart from Christ. That's our, that's, that is our status. And Christ on the cross spilled his blood so that we would not have to because of our sin. It's his blood and his blood alone that makes us pure. And his shed blood gives us life eternal. 
This righteous king has come, spilling his blood for us, the blood of a new everlasting covenant. And through his shed blood, our sins are forgiven. Through his shed blood, we are made righteous. We have his righteousness because of Christ. God looks at us, looks at you, just like he did Jesus and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And so we're about to take a little plastic thimble with some welches in it and drink it. And what we're doing in those moments is, is remembering the covenant God made with us, that it's the spilt blood of Christ that covers us. And that's really good news. Because if it's up to you and if it's up to me, we're going to hell. But it's not. God's done it all. And so as you lift up that little cup of juice today, remember the covenant God made with you. That Jesus' blood covers you. That Jesus is is your salvation, taking the wrath of God against your sin for you. One day, we're going to raise up a different cup. Jesus is going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb at the head of the table. It's going to be a big table. There's going to be a whole millions upon millions of people there. And he's going to raise up a glass. And he's going to say, and, and, and we're going to say and sing to him, praise to the Lamb, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So today, we remember the covenant. We remember what Christ has done for us, but we also long for the day when we'll look ahead, when we are in the new heavens and new earth, sitting at his table, fully restored to our King in flesh and blood. As we prepare to respond today, if you would take the Word of God and turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and hear the word of Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is called the shepherd psalm. And it highlights the role of shepherd as superhero. This is what shepherds were for the nation of Israel. They were the warriors, the cowboys, the avengers. Shepherds were the superheroes. And the promised king who would come and deliver Israel and rule for their good was to be a shepherd. A shepherd who would come and rescue Israel as broken down sheep and rule over them and defeat their enemies. And David here realizes that though he is a shepherd... And a very famous shepherd, 
one who kills lions and bears with his own hand, one who destroys Goliath, the giant. David realizes in the heart of battle that he needs a shepherd greater than himself. Notice in Psalm 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not enough in and of myself. I need the Lord to be my shepherd, my hero. And in this psalm, we see that the Lord provides, restores, leads, protects. But David makes all of this personal. The Lord provides for me. He restores me. He leads me. He protects me. The Lord makes a name for himself by taking a broken down little sheep like David with all kinds of flaws brokenness, scared, binds him up, restores his health, leads him through danger to live safely with God himself forever. Notice in this psalm, if you haven't noticed before, how the imagery moves from pasture that David knew well as a shepherd through the valley of death and ends at the table of the house of the Lord. David declares that God himself will take him from the pasture through Death Valley. There are all kinds of dangers, wolves in the darkness, enemies in the caves, And bring him safely to the house of the Lord where there is a banquet table. But notice this banquet table in verses 5 and 6. Who is present at the banquet table? This celebratory meal, fellowship meal with God in the house of the Lord is in the presence of my enemies. Notice that. He prepares a table for me in the presence of of my enemies. I'm sure you've been to lunch with someone who says, you know what, I'm just not going to eat today. And you sit down after you've ordered your big meal and you're sitting there eating and you're staring at them and it's so awkward to eat in front of someone who's not eating, right? We've been in those situations where eating can be awkward. But think about feasting and celebrating in the presence of those who want to kill you who want to destroy you, your enemies. David declares the peace that God brings in his protection for him, that he can sit down and have a fellowship meal in the presence of those who want to take his life. Notice in the table, the table that's there, notice the oil, which signifies comfort, this anointing that would be there for David, and this cup of celebration that overflows. David says, there is a day coming where God will bring victory for myself over my enemies, and I will know the comfort of God and the celebration of God as my enemies gather around and look on, and they will be humiliated. But just like a little sheep or a little flock that's grazing with wolves all around, there will be no worry, no anxiety, because my enemies have been defeated. Now, we know that this shepherd song points us to a better, greater shepherd whose name is Jesus. 
the good shepherd who declared that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the Lord who is the good shepherd. And how does the good shepherd lead us? He walks into this death valley where there are shadows of sin and death. And he gives himself up to his enemies. The wolves of sin and death that are howling in the shadows, Jesus gives himself up for to them. And on the cross dies under our sin and is raised and prepares a table for us in the Father's house where we will gather and all of our enemies are defeated. Sin, death, and Satan will look on as we enjoy the victory of Jesus, the good shepherd. And you know what the Lord's table does for us? We celebrate our seat at that banquet table now. And we gather here in a world that we would say is this valley where there are shadows of death all around. Sin and death look on today. They are our enemies that we know full well. You gathered here today. And you declared as you took the bread that your sin was forgiven because of the body broken for you. Jesus broke. You did that in the presence of sin. Your own guilt that may have even creeped into your head today, reminding you of your past. And yet in the presence of your enemy, you feasted on the gospel. And you said, I have been forgiven of my sin. We gathered here today in the presence of death. Some of us wake up every morning and we say, I'm one day closer. I'm one day closer. I'm on the backside of this thing now. Some of us woke up this week and we got a call from a doctor that you got to go back and have more tests run. Some of you got calls this week of friends who had died. Some of you are waiting for your loved one because you've been told they only have weeks to live. And you gathered here today as if you were at a banquet table in the presence of your enemy, death. And you declared to death today, you have been defeated. That's what the Lord table does for us. It's a celebratory meal in the presence of our enemies, declaring that Jesus is the good shepherd who has defeated sin and death for us. But one of the things that we must understand as we respond today is that when it's all said and done and we gather with the Lord Jesus Christ at the marriage feast of the Lamb, when we gather even as Clay declared to celebrate in this banquet hall in the New Jerusalem the victory of Jesus Christ and we gather to be with Him forever, the enemies of David... The enemies whom Jesus will make his footstool forever will not be the only enemies present because we will gaze down that table as those who were former enemies now seated at the table because Jesus was considered the enemy on the cross and dying for our sins. And so today, if you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you gathered here and this was all awkward and it was weird. What are they doing? 
Let me just be very, very clear with you today. You have an infinite debt before God because you have sinned against God. God created you for his glory, and you said, I will live for my glory. With that one little thought, that one little moment where you said, I am my own, I will do what I want, you have sinned against your creator, and you deserve to be separated from him forever and ever, only knowing his judgment forever. And yet he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus was the one separated in death enduring God's judgment on the cross when he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he was enduring judgment for you if you would believe in him today. And so I want to invite you to the table, the table that is coming, where you will gather with those who were once enemies and celebrate the good shepherd who gave his life for you.